Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 14th of April for the listening week that begins the 15th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. We'll open with news from Tennessee. This comes from theroot.com. First one is written by Wayne Washington, published on Wednesday. The Tennessee expulsions underscored where black political representation is most troubling. Let's examine the data. Black Americans are underrepresented in the states they live in, including every one of the 13 states that made up the Confederacy. The outcry over the expulsions of a pair of black Tennessee state lawmakers underscores a problem that often gets little notice. The already massive underrepresentation of black Americans in the halls of state government. The majority of black Americans, some 56%, according to figures from the Pew Research Center, live in the South. Most black Americans have ancestral ties to the region, and despite its blood-soaked history of racism and racial violence, it's where many black folks have chosen to remain. But it's also where many, pardon me, where black Americans have far less political clout than they should given their numbers in the region's population. Black people are not represented in states we live in. Black Americans are underrepresented in every one of the 13 states that make up the Confederacy, and in many states with the highest percentages of black residents, the gap between those percentages and the percentage of blacks in the state legislature is the largest. Let's look at a few examples. Using 2022 U.S. Census Bureau population figures and a compilation of black representation in state legislatures put together in 2021 by Governing, a Washington, D.C.-based online publication that covers state and local government. Black Americans accounted for 17% of Tennessee's population in 2022, but just under 11% of the state's 132 legislators were black. In Georgia, birthplace of the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., 33% of the state's population was black. Only 22% of its state legislators were black. It's almost exactly the same in Louisiana, where black Americans accounted for 33% of the state population and only 22.9% of the state legislature. Mississippi has the largest percentage of black residents in the region, 38%, but only 27.6% of the Magnolia State's legislature was black. It's got to be better in Virginia and North Carolina, right? Nope and nope. Both states boast a vaunted system of higher education that has made them economic powerhouses in the region, 
but both feature the same underrepresentation of black Americans as their southern brethren. Black residents accounted for 20% of Virginia's population, but only 11.4% of its state legislature. In North Carolina, black residents were 22.3% of the population and only 15.3% of the legislature. Blacks are underrepresented in state government in other parts of the country, but the problem is most pronounced, most pernicious, in the part of the country where most black people have decided to live. If you're asking yourself how much this really matters, the answer is simple. Far, far more than you could even imagine. Here's why it is important to have black representation. It used to be that U.S. Senator, pardon me, senators were chosen by members of a state's legislature. That's not the case anymore, but state legislators still have a lot of clout and likely impact day-to-day -day life more than federal office holders. It's state legislators who approve the state budget, which determines which state agencies get how much money. If you work for one of them, state legislators control your employer's purse strings. Still hoping for that new community center in your town? The feds aren't paying for that. Money for that will likely come from the efforts of your state representative or state senator, who will need to convince his or her colleagues it's a worthy project. Oh, and state legislators draw the lines that make up U.S. House districts. If you used to be represented by a U.S. House member you supported, but now you've been told you're not in her district anymore, that's your state legislature's handiwork. Legislatures draw House district maps, as well as their own, with the party in power often bending over backward to make sure they keep that power. If those expulsions... Pardon me. Skipped a sentence. So no, expelling those Tennessee lawmakers was no small thing. If those expulsions were to stick as of this writing, it doesn't look like it. They will make a long festering problem worse. And even if they don't, there's a long way to go before black population even comes close to matching black representation. Second article on this topic. Written by Jessica Washing, updated on Wednesday. Reps Justin Pearson and Justin Jones were reinstated, but that doesn't mean this is over! Exclamation point. Representatives Justin Pearson and Justin Jones are back, but this doesn't spell the end of this crisis for black Americans. Less than a week after being banished from the state legislature, Representative Justin Pearson of Memphis is back. On Wednesday, the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted to reinstate Pearson after both he and Representative Justin Jones were expelled from the State House. People Power just sent us back to save the people of District 86, proclaimed Pearson after the vote. If there is anybody who is doubting the power of people, tell them to look right here in Memphis. Representative Jones of Nashville was reinstated to his position on Monday. However, the fact that this happened at all spells trouble for black Americans in Tennessee and across the United States. 
Not only were two democratically elected black Americans removed from their positions for speaking out against gun violence, but thousands of black voters in their districts were also disenfranchised. The worry now is that these types of tactics could spread. Why this is still a serious problem for black Americans. The Root spoke with Ohio State University professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who did not shy away from sharing his concerns when he said, I can guarantee you that we will see something similar in similar places going forward. That is a bad precedent. Whether it's anti-democratic measures to ban women's rights, decrease voting rights, or censor what can be taught in schools, when one red state does it, the others will follow, said Jeffries. He also noted that the laws in Tennessee are not unique, and we could see this being done on a national scale. Don't be surprised if we see this when you have either black legislators or progressive legislators trying to amplify their voice, he said. In one way or another, rules will be used to silence them. What happens after the council members are restored? It's worth noting that this debacle won't be entirely over once both representatives are reappointed. The reappointments would only be able, pardon me, would only be to temporary positions. That means both Pearson and Jones would have to run for re-election in special election races. So far, we don't have a specific date for when they'd have to run again. However, both politicians have made it very clear that they plan to seek re-election. Considering the outcry over their ousting, their re-election campaigns should start on solid footing. And finally on this topic from the New York Times, a piece by Pearson himself. And this was posted April 12th under the Opinion Guest Essay section. Defiant and determined, I'm ready to keep fighting for Tennessee. Dateline Memphis. In January, my former high school classmate Larry Thorne was shot dead. Larry was sweet and beloved and a coach and secretary at a Shelby County, Tennessee middle school when he was killed on January 10th, just a month before I took my seat in the state house. In February, in only 10 days, 20 people were shot in mass shootings in Memphis, the community I represented. And on Monday, five people were shot dead at the Old National Bank in Louisville, Kentucky. In the wake of the March 27th Covenant School mass shooting in Nashville, that took six precious lives, including that of a nine-year-old Hallie Scruggs, pardon me, that's nine-year-olds, Hallie Scruggs, Evelyn Dykehouse, and William Kinney, our people are traumatized. They want action. Following the school massacre, I walked into work in the State House each day, seeing hundreds of young protesters, many with signs that asked, Am I next? We were traumatized, too. We wanted action, too. And the difference was... It was literally our job to act, yet Republican legislators refused to take meaningful action. Instead, some have averted their eyes and hurried into the chamber, 
walking through hundreds of mourning protesters to discuss a bill to further expand gun rights by allowing teachers to carry weapons on campus. But many of us did not. We stopped and embraced traumatized children, parents, and elders. We prayed, we protested. In this season of rebirth and renewal, I stood beside my people with hope. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. Last week, the people of Tennessee and the nation witnessed an assault against democracy when my colleague, Justin Jones, and I, both young black Democratic men, were expelled from office for allegedly breaching decorum on the House floor. My former colleague, a 60-year-old white female Democratic representative, Gloria Johnson, had also joined our peaceful protest against gun violence, but narrowly survived expulsion. Mr. Jones has since returned to the House after a vote by the Nashville Metropolitan Council. I'm hopeful the Shelby County Board of Commissioners similarly puts me back in the House on Wednesday. There is something amiss in the decorum of the State House when GOP leaders like Representative Paul Sherrill, who proposed death from, quote, hanging by a tree as an acceptable form of state execution. Mr. Sherrill later apologized for his comment. Feel comfortable berating Mr. Jones and me for our peaceful act of civil disobedience. This in Tennessee, the birthplace of the Klan, a land stained with the blood of lynchings of my people, I wasn't elected to be pushed to the back of the room and silenced. We, who were elected to represent all Tennesseans, black, white, brown, immigrant, female, male, poor, young, transgender, and queer, are routinely silenced when we try to speak on their behalf. Last week, the world was allowed to see it in broad daylight. In such a hostile environment for democracy, I am inspired by the late civil rights fighter and Congressman John Lewis, who in 1965, when demonstrating for voting rights in Selma, Alabama, endured a police beating that almost took his life. In 2016, after the tragic Pulse nightclub massacre that killed 49 people, he led a sit-in on the U.S. House floor for 25 hours to protest the inaction of lawmakers in the pockets of the National Rifle Association. My mother, a schoolteacher, and my father, a pastor, instilled in me the hope that justice is possible for all. When I was 15, I attended a Memphis City School Board meeting pardon me, with my parents to give a speech demanding access to quality textbooks and classes that white peers in their school districts had. These were resources that increased their opportunities for a good college education, chances that black students too deserved. A few years ago, I helped lead a coalition of community activists in the fight against the construction of the Bihalia Connection Crude Oil Pipeline, project of my late grandmother's community in southwest Memphis, where, according to a 2013 study, the risk of cancer is four times the national average. Both of my grandmothers died from cancer. Our coalition killed the project before it killed more of us. We fought and we won. 
unchecked gun violence, environmental racism, and denial of basic health and human services should enrage us all and compel us to action. It's not just our individual voices that were sanctioned and silenced last Thursday. It was the voices of the nearly 135,000 Tennesseans we represented, many desperate for protection from the absence of many common-sense gun safety laws in our state. Since the Covenant School shooting, the Republican supermajority in the State House has done little but advance a bill that would allow teachers to carry guns in school and propose a $140 million budget increase pardon me, to pay for the presence of armed guards in public schools, further militarizing them without adequate evidence that this makes schools safer. Besides expanding already expansive gun rights, Republican-led state houses across the country are proposing and passing staggering numbers of bills that serve a fringe, white, evangelical agenda that abrogates the rights and freedoms of the rest of us. They're passing legislation to control the intellectual freedom of writers and educators, proposing laws that would restrict the bodily autonomy of transgender children and people who can become pregnant, and curtailing even our right to vote. Combined with a shrinking social safety net as people lose access to resources to meet basic health, housing, and food needs, we have a nation in pain and peril. In a small victory for our people clamoring for change, Governor Bill Lee announced Tuesday that he would sign an executive order strengthening background checks for buying firearms and called for Republican lawmakers to support a red flag law. I was elected early this year by the people of Memphis and Millington to stand up for all of us against encroachments on our freedoms. I will continue to fight with and for our people, whether in or out of office. We and the young protesters are the future of a new Tennessee. Those who seek to silence us will not have the final say. And back to TheRoot.com for the next one written by Candace McDuffie, published on Tuesday. Congressional Black Caucus pressures Buttigieg for, pardon me, Buttigieg, pardon me, I know how to pronounce his name, Buttigieg for to reform racist traffic stops that harm black people. In a powerful letter, Democratic reps expressed an urgency to protect black drivers. Nearly 30 members of the Congressional Black Caucus, CBC, are encouraging the Department of Transportation to denounce the unjust and discriminatory status quo of traffic enforcement. They are also requesting reform to reduce traffic stops that are driven by racial bias. In a letter directly addressing Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, 27, members of the CBC, including Democratic Reps Cory Bush, Missouri, Ayanna Presley, Massachusetts, Jamal Bowman, New York, and Ilhan Omar, Minnesota, said they have a grave concern for the well-being of black drivers. The lawmakers stated, quote, On our nation's roads and highways, black motorists have experienced disproportionate scrutiny 
and excessive force under the guise of traffic enforcement. As Secretary of the United States Department of Transportation, DOT, we urge you to condemn the status quo of traffic enforcement and develop reforms to reduce racial inequities in traffic stops. Every year, the Bureau of Justice Statistics reported that more than 20 million people are pulled over for traffic violations. Even though black folks are less likely to have access to a vehicle, they are more likely to be stopped than their white peers. The lawmakers say this is because officers frequently choose to enforce traffic laws against black drivers over white ones. Quoting, for example, the use of racial profiling causes black drivers to be intentionally stopped for minor traffic violations as pretexts for police to question them and search their vehicles in hopes of discovering contraband. Instead, racist traffic enforcement stigmatizes black people and undermines DOT's focus on transit equity. In 2022, more than 175 people were killed by cops after they were stopped for traffic violations. The lawmakers noted how traffic stops can often mean death for black folks. Historians have traced the roots of policing, black mobility, and physical freedom to our nation's legacy of slavery and bondage for black bodies. It is critical that the Department of Transportation recognizes the social context of traffic enforcement disparities and identifies solutions to redress the harms, the letter said. In addition, the CBC noted that one solution is to use direct funds from the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to create reforms like eradicating financial barriers to vehicle registration and upgrading traffic lights. Next, moving to international news, this one from Reuters, written by Natalie Grover and Jennifer Rigby, Dateline London, I'm looking for a date, posted April 14th. Ghana, the first to approve Oxford's malaria vaccine. Ghana has become the first country in the world to approve a new malaria vaccine from Oxford University, a potential step forward in fighting a disease that kills hundreds of thousands of children each year. The approval is unusual as it comes before the publication of final stage trial data. It is unclear when the vaccine may be rolled out in Ghana as other regulatory bodies including the World Health Organization, WHO, are still assessing its safety and effectiveness. The WHO can provide support, but it is not an approving institution. The FDA has the mandate as a regulator, and that is what we have done. Delise Darko, CEO of Ghana's Food and Drugs Authority, told Reuters. Darko did not comment on the timeline for the vaccine rollout, as that will be organized by the Ghana Health Service, the Ghana Malaria Program, and the country's immunization body, the EPI. Those organizations did not immediately respond to requests for comment. 
The mosquito-borne disease kills more than 600,000 people each year, most of them children in Africa. Oxford scientist Adrian Hill said Ghana's drug regulator has approval pardon me, has approved the vaccine domestically for the age group at highest risk of death from malaria, children aged 5 months to 36 months. Oxford has a deal with Serum Institute of India to produce up to 200 million doses of the vaccine, which is known as R21, annually. This is the first time a major vaccine has been approved in an African country ahead of rich nations, said Hill, approving a vaccine before the publication of data from final stage trials is also rare, experts told Reuters. Particularly since COVID, African regulators have been taking a much more proactive stance. They've been saying, we don't want to be the last in the queue, said Hill. Vaccines have taken decades to develop, given the complicated structure and life cycle of the malaria parasite. The Oxford shot is the second in recent years to be approved for use. Childhood vaccines in the poorest parts of Africa are typically co-funded by international organizations such as Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, only after getting WHO approval. Ghana uses Gavi funding for its vaccine campaigns, although it is moving towards buying its own shots after economic growth in recent years. Dr. Derek Sim, Gavi's Managing Director of Vaccine Markets, said the organization was ready to provide funding for R21 if WHO backs it. He said it was crucial that the cost was kept below $3, as Serum has indicated. This shows how close the world is to having a second approved vaccine to fight malaria, he said, meeting the need. The first malaria vaccine, Moscarix from British drug maker GSK, was endorsed by the WHO last year after decades of work. But a lack of funding and commercial potential is thwarting GSK's a bit, pardon me, capacity to produce as many doses as needed, demonstrating the need for another candidate. GSK has committed to produce up to 15 million doses of Moscurix every year through 2028, well under the roughly 100 million doses a year of the four-dose vaccine the WHO says is needed long-term to cover around 25 million children. Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi were all involved in the pilot program for the rollout of Moscurix and have begun introducing it more widely in recent months. Since it began in 2019, 1.2 million children across the three countries have received at least one dose of the Moscurix vaccine. The WHO said last month that in the areas where the vaccine has been given, all-cause child mortality has dropped by 10%, a sign of its impact. Mid-stage data from the Oxford vaccine trial involving more than 400 young children was published in September, showing vaccine efficacy of between 70 to 80% at 12 months following the fourth dose. 
Data from an ongoing Phase 3 clinical trial with 4,800 children in Burkina Faso, Kenya, Mali, and Tanzania is due to be published in the coming months. Hill said the data suggested a similar performance as in the file, pardon me, Phase 2 trial and has been shared with regulatory authorities over the last six months. Next, an article or two from history coming from the Smithsonian Institute. This one was posted on April 10th, written by Aaron L. Thompson, the author of Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of American Monuments. From the Civil War era, at Fort Pillow, Confederates massacred black soldiers after they surrendered. Targeted even when unarmed, around 70% of the black Union troops who fought in the 1864 battle died as a result of the clash. When Yolanda Burgess first visited Tennessee's Fort Pillow State Historic Park in 2006, she hoped to see where her great-grandfather, Armstead Burgess, a member of the United States Colored Troops, USCT, was taken captive by Confederate soldiers on April 12, 1864. Burgess wanted to walk the same ground as her ancestor. Instead, she got lost. The park's trails were washed out by years of heavy rain and spotty maintenance. The few pathways that remained open were poorly marked with faded paper signs in plastic sleeves nailed to the occasional tree. That's how it was before Robbie Tidwell took charge, said Burgess. Tidwell, the Tennessee State Parks ranger who now manages the site, whacked weeds on Fort Pillow's earthen fortifications when he was in high school. He found himself drawn to the fort, where one of the greatest tragedies of the Civil War took place a battle that resulted in the deaths of almost 250 Union soldiers, the majority of whom were black. When I visited the park recently, we hopped into Tidwell's pickup truck for a tour. It took longer than expected, partly because the outer fortifications of the encampment span 1,642 acres, but mostly because every time Tidwell saw a visitor, he rolled down his window to ask how their day was going and if he could help them with anything. Tidwell has made many improvements to the park in the time he has worked there. He has recruited Eagle Scout volunteers to rebuild trails, expanded the number of campsites, added playgrounds, and stocked the lake with both catfish and rental kayaks. For Tidwell, the point of these amenities is to draw people in so they will learn more about USCT history. If we forget, he says, all these deaths will have been for nothing. Constructed on Confederate orders in 1861, Fort Pillow sits on the western edge of Tennessee, high on a bluff over the Mississippi River. Union troops captured the Confederate stronghold in May 1862 to stop its cannons from threatening shipping on the Mississippi. 
Almost two years later, on April 12, 1864, Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest led around 1,500 troops on a raid to recapture the fort. They far outnumbered the defenders. 295 white members of the 13th United States Cavalry and 262 USCT members divided between the 6th U.S. Colored Heavy Artillery and Battery D of the 2nd U.S. Colored Light Artillery. Kevin M. Levin, author of Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth, says Confederate soldiers saw, quote, their worst racial nightmare at Fort Pillow when they encountered black men wearing uniforms and carrying rifles. Previous engagements, like that of the famed 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment at the Second Battle of Fort Wagner in 1863, had already shown the Confederates how well the USCT could fight. Almost 180,000 African American men enlisted in the Union Army during the Civil War, serving in segregated units led by white and non-commissioned black officers. Many of these men, including Burgess's great-grandfather Armstead, escaped from slavery and then volunteered to fight for the freedom of others. Black enlistees faced racial discrimination and were often assigned to supporting non-combat roles. Instead of the musket, it is the spade and the wheelbarrow and the axe wrote USCT soldier Nimrod Raleigh to Abraham Lincoln in 1864, asking the president to remember we are men standing in readiness. Even when they weren't allowed to fight, black soldiers performed crucial, hazardous work. In the family's Civil War, Black Soldiers and the Fight for Racial Justice, Holly A. Pinero, Jr., a historian at Furman University, chronicles the injuries of USCT soldiers who pulled heavy cannons, dodged logs and mule kicks while constructing roads, and faced blinding glares while digging ditches. When Tidwell returned to Fort Pillow as a ranger after college, he began planning the reconstruction of the embrasures, openings for artillery, in the inner fortification where the Union troops took their final stand against Forrest. Rainwater had enlarged the openings until they collapsed. Most years, the park's funds went to more urgent erosion management projects. So Tidwell had to get creative. He rebuilt the embrasures using boards he smoothed and shaped himself on an antique sawmill. Replica cannons now stand in these openings. When I visited with Tidwell, the wall of the redoubt rose above our heads, cutting off our view of anything modern. After the Confederates swept over the top of this wall, Union soldiers tried to escape downhill through the, pardon me, toward the river, but they were still within range. Realizing the hopelessness of their position, many Union soldiers threw down their arms and attempted to surrender. A congressional inquiry held shortly after the battle found that the Confederates continued to shoot unarmed men. They especially targeted USCT soldiers, 
while around 20% of the white Union soldiers died as a result of the battle, approximately 70% of the USCT soldiers at Fort Pillow were killed, along with an unknown number of civilians. USCT Private George Shaw testified that a Confederate shot him after he surrendered, telling him, Damn you, you are fighting against your master. The Confederates then threw Shaw into the river, where he survived by swimming until night fell. Shaw said he witnessed the execution of three teenagers who had taken refuge at the fort after escaping from slavery. Un pardon me, unable to swim, those boys made easy targets. They begged them as long as they could, remembered Shaw, but they shot them right in the forehead. News of the events at Fort Pillow soon spread, shared by Union soldiers who had escaped the battle and even by horrified Confederate soldiers. One Confederate wrote home about what he called the most terrible ordeal of my whole life, describing to his mother and sisters how Forrest had ordered black men shot down like dogs. For the rest of the war, remember Fort Pillow was a rallying cry for the USCT. Pinero thinks that black soldiers shouted the phrase before battle to remind themselves that they, unlike white troops, did not have the racial privilege—pardon me—the racial privilege of surrendering. Armstead was one of the battle's survivors. Injuries to his head left depressions that could still be felt decades later, as his military pension application records show. When he recovered, the Confederates forced him to build fortifications in Alabama, Mississippi, and Virginia. As soon as Armstead was liberated during the Union Army's capture of Richmond in April 1865, he reported back to duty and served until January 1866. After the war, Fort Pillow reverted to private land. Trees and brush grew on its outer earthworks, which came to look more like hills than defensive features. Tennessee made the site into a state park in 1971. At first, the small museum in its visitor's center consisted mainly of informational printouts thumbtacked into display cases. Tidwell applied for grants to refurbish the museum, which now informs visitors about the everyday life of USCT soldiers. One room holds an embouchure, complete with a cannon for those who can't make the 2.5-mile round-trip hike to the fort itself. Tidwell says replacing the museum's flooring was quite a challenge, as few vendors were willing to guarantee that a 2,000-pound canyon could roll across their offerings without causing damage. The most effective new display in the museum is one of the simplest. It's a sign that lists the names of all who died on the day of the battle, or from their wounds, 13 Confederates, 64 members of the 13th Tennessee and 182nd UC USCT soldiers. After cultivating relationships with local schools, Til Tidwell and his two fellow rangers began leading tours for hundreds of students each month. Tidwell also asks, pardon me, Tidwell always asks the students to look at the list of USCT dead and raise their hands if they spot their last names. 
The majority do. Their families have lived in this area for generations, and now they have received the first hint that they might be related to someone who died for the Union. For Burgess, Fort Pillow is a story of how black, pardon me, black folks fought for their freedom. Telling this story is important because they still fight for their freedom. For nearly a decade, she has come to this historic park every April pardon me, April 12th to read the names of the dead and lay wreaths of white carnations and rosemary. Burgess compares her efforts to the annual remembrance events at Pearl Harbor. Unlike the National Memorial at Pearl Harbor, Fort Pillow lacks a monument for descendants to visit. She says, it's just the land. Burgess comes here to remember the USCT soldiers who walked the land and died on that land. If you dig deep into the earth, their blood still remains. Pinheiro believes that all Americans owe a debt of gratitude to the defenders of Fort Pillow. Like Burgess, he points out that black soldiers were too often written out of the histories of emancipation that framed African Americans as victims of slavery rather than people who fought for their own freedom. Pinheiro praises the park's rangers for taking up the USCT rallying cry and doing their best to remember Fort Pillow. The fort itself is not the only site for remembrance. In 1867, as part of a general effort to bury the Union dead, federal authorities moved 258 bodies, including 109 USCT soldiers, from temporary burials near where they fell at Fort Pillow to the Memphis Na National Cemetery, 60 miles south. Memphis resident Callie Hurd was stunned when she learned that so many USCT dead were buried at the cemetery during a chance conversation with Tidwell in March 2016. He had volunteered to drive her around the fort in search of her lost cell phone. Though only a few weeks remained before the anniversary of the battle, Hurd managed to organize a commemorative event at the cemetery. She and her son, Ronald Hurd II, have hosted commemorations every year since, gathering volunteers to make hundreds of carnation wreaths used to adorn each grave. In 2017, the herds put together a symbolic funeral with military honors, including a 21-gun salute, a color guard, and Memphis Police Department officers leading a riderless horse to symbolize the fallen soldiers. Heard knew she had to find a way to make the commemoration permanent. In 2018, mother and son helped place the historical marker that now stands just outside the cemetery gates. Fort Pillow is not just one person or one group's history, says Ronald. This is all our history. There is still work to be done at Fort Pillow. Tidwell's biggest plan is the construction of a bridge over the ravine between the visitor center and the fort. Currently, the length of the walk means that too many day-trippers and school groups have to choose between visiting the museum and the site of the battle. Tidwell wants everyone to have time to see both. He has secured the millions of dollars of state funding necessary for the bridge, which will cut the trip to the battle site down to only half a mile 
and allow visitors to walk the same path as the retreating Union soldiers. Burgess will finally be able to trace her great-grandfather's route. As Tidwell drove me back to the visitor center after nearly two hours of showing me around the park, he pointed out another change on his to-do list. A sign by the fort's outer earthworks tells visitors they were, quote, built by Confederates. Really, they were built by enslaved people, likely hundreds of them whose lives have disappeared from history even more completely than those of the USCT dead. When I got back to my car, I gave Tidwell a copy of the book I recently wrote about controversies surrounding American monuments. He'd provided me with information about Fort Pillow while I was researching that project. But he was surprised. It turned out he'd forgotten about those emails from years ago. He had offered me hours of, of his time just because I'd shown up and started asking questions. Still from the Smithsonian Magazine, but moving forward in time just a bit. This one's written by Danny Lewis, posted April 13th. Oh, pardon me, originally posted in 2016 and updated this year, April 13th. The 1873 Colfax Massacre set back the Reconstruction Era, occurring 150 years ago, one of the worst incidents of racial violence after the Civil War set the stage for, pardon me, for segregation. The Reconstruction period that followed America's Civil War was one of the worst, most violent eras in American history. During that time, thousands of African Americans were killed by domestic terrorists like the Ku Klux Klan, who tried to reinforce antebellum policies of white supremacy. For many historians, one of the worst examples of this violence occurred 150 years ago, the Colfax Massacre of 1873. Immediately after the end of the war, different factions began fighting over power. Bitter over the Confederacy's loss, many white Southern Democrats tried their best to continue disenfranchising and restricting the rights of former slaves. At the same time, insurgent white supremacist groups terrorized African Americans throughout the South. In Louisiana, the fight over the post-war government was particularly bloody, as PBS's American Experience series explores. Simmering resentments between Southern Democrats, many of whom were former slave owners, and the Republican-dominated federal government exploded in the 1872 election for Louisiana's governor. The ballot resulted in a hotly contested split between the Republican and Democratic candidates, and when President Ulysses S. Grant sent federal troops to support the Republican candidate, white Southerners rebelled and formed a heavily armed insurgent army called the White League. Similar to the Ku Klux Klan, the White League was a paramilitary group that intimidated and attacked black residents and white Republicans, pardon me, Republicans across the state, writes Henry Louis Gates Jr. for The Root. Out of fear that local Democrats might try to seize control of the great, pardon me again, the Grant Parish Regional Government, 
which was almost evenly split between black and white citizens, an all-black militia took control of the local courthouse in April 1873. Soon after, a mob of more than 150 white men, mostly former Confederate soldiers and members of the Ku Klux Klan and the White League, arrived and surrounded the courthouse, writes Bill Decker for the Lafayette Adv Advertiser. After firing a cannon on the militiamen inside the courthouse on April 13th, the two forces fired at each other until the black defenders were forced to surrender. But when they surrendered, the white mob murdered many of the black men, shooting at them and hanging some. Historians aren't sure how many people died in the end, but while records show that the massacre resulted in the deaths of three white men, it's estimated that anywhere from 60 to 150 African Americans were killed. The bloodiest single instance of racial carnage in the Reconstruction era, the Colfax Massacre taught many lessons, including the length to which some opponents of Reconstruction would go to regain their accustomed authority, wrote historian Eric Foner in Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, 1863-1877. He also said, among blacks in Louisiana, the incident was long remembered as proof that in any large confrontation, they stood at a fatal disadvantage. While the massacre made headlines across the country, and 97 members of the white mob were indicted, in the end, only nine men were charged with violating the Enforcement Acts of 1870 and 1871, sometimes known as the Ku Klux Klan Acts, intended to guarantee the rights of freedmen under the 14th and 15th Amendments. Lawyers for the victims believe that they had a better chance of bringing the ringleaders to justice in a federal court citing conspiracy convictions, instead of charging them with murder, which would have been tried in the heavily democratic state courts. But that plan backfired. The, pardon me, the defendants appealed, and when the case eventually came before the Supreme Court in 1876, the justices overturned the lower court's convictions ruling that the Enforcement Acts applied only to actions by the states, not by individuals. This ruling essentially neutered the federal government's ability to prosecute hate crimes committed against African Americans. Without the threat of being tried for treason in federal court, white supremacists now only had to look for legal loopholes and corrupt officials to continue targeting their victims reports Gates. Meanwhile, principles of segregation were beginning to work their ways into law, with Plessy v. Ferguson officially codifying separate but equal just 20 years later. The Colfax Massacre was one, pardon me, the Colfax Massacre was more or less ignored until the 1920s, when local officials raised a monument honoring the three white men who died in the attack on the courthouse which called the battle a riot. In 1951, officials marked the site of the massacre with a plaque, once again calling it a riot, that, quote, marked the end of carpetbag misrule in the South. That plaque stood for 70 years before activists pushed to remove it, 
succeeding in 2021. In 2023, the organizers dedicated the new Colfax Massacre Memorial, which details the massacre's lasting significance and lists the victims by name. Next, an opinion piece from the Washington Post, written by Theodore R. Johnson, posted April 12th. You cannot love America and avoid the topic of race. In the 1997 film, Love Jones, the main character is a writer and poet who tries to impress a young photographer he has just met by freestyling a poem at her, for her, pardon me, at an open mic night. The verses begin charmingly enough to win an endearing smile from her, but things take a turn when his poem ventures onto the topic of sex. Afterwards, she brings this up, and he doesn't see the issues, asking, what's wrong with sex? To which she replies, nothing, there's just other topics. A survey of my writing quickly reveals an enduring focus on race. People have wondered why it's such a preoccupation. They often don't ask directly. Instead, they might ask a question such as, You served in the military. Have you considered writing about leadership or national service? The prelude to that question, I'm tired of hearing about race all the time, is left unsaid. I understand the impulse. Watch the news, listen to politicians, or simply talk to friends and family about the world, and there is a fair chance race will come up, often in ways that aren't constructive. Even the hand gestures of women's college basketball players can become fodder for arguments fundamentally about racial stereotypes and double standards. Race sensationalism is polarizing, which makes it profitable. Filling hours of opinion journalism and podcasts, inspiring divisive campaigns, and incentivizing conflict entrepreneurs to stoke the flames for personal and political gain. But that's not why I write about race. As I see it, race is seldom the actual root of a civic or policy issue. Certainly it can be said, and sometimes is, birtherism, hate crimes, and even the internment of Japanese Americans, and not Americans of German or Italian descent, during World War II, all stem from racist beliefs and acts. But in my eyes, in the present-day United States, Racism is better understood as the flashing light that warns us of cracks in our nation's foundation. If you want to know the ways in which our practice of democracy or republicanism falls short of our professed ideals, pay attention to race. Look to the struggles that racial and ethnic minorities have faced when attempting to exercise the right to vote or have their policy concerns prioritized if you want to identify flaws in our economy, note all the instances where black and Latino folks in particular are left behind. Employment, wages, housing, wealth, and credit. If you want to see the flaws in policy concerning immigration, national security, the legal system, health care, poverty, and the social safety net, pay attention to the disparities experienced by those outside of the racial majority. I write about race because I care about America. That sentiment might come as a shock to some. It is rare today to hear someone who talks forthrightly about the ills of structural racism lead with a declaration of patriotism or pride in the nation's progress. 
But this is squarely within the tradition of black America, from historic stalwarts Ida B. Wells and Langston Hughes to modern-day activists like the Reverend William J. Barber II and Colin Kaepernick. Race isn't the problem with the American experiment so much as it is the best indicator of the experiment's structural problems. Consider slavery. It's not the nation's original sin because a significant number of white Americans enslaved black people. It, lo pardon me, it looms so large for America because the nation was supposedly founded on the idea of human equality, yet allowed this grossest of inequalities to persist and expand. The criminal justice system doesn't need reform because it disproportionately confronts and punishes black, native, and Hispanic Americans, but because abuse of power by the state should not be tolerated in a nation founded on the idea of government by and for the people, all people. The racial inequalities we see in health care and education outcomes, even when controlled for class, do not exist because of black Americans' race or some imagined cultural carelessness, but because those systems are from a different era and poorly designed to account for black people's distinctive American journey. As structured, they hinder the ability to pursue happiness, stability, and security unless they are tailored to the communities they serve. The democratic backsliding the nation is experiencing today is an indicator of the way race factored into the cultural, political, and legislative conflicts of the past three decades. The nation's trouble is not that it has a racist bone that simply needs removing, but that it is disturbingly slow to recognize that racism is the sharp pain that helps us locate the fractures. I write about race because finding the fractures in our society and our democracy is a necessary step toward healing and strengthening, not destroying, the whole of the nation. I write about race because you cannot love America and avoid the issue. Yes, there are other topics, some of critical importance, but nothing reveals where the nation is most vulnerable like the question of race. If you want a United States that more fully realizes its potential, and I believe most of us do, fixing the structural flaws revealed by race presents the most promising path. And that brings me to the end of our time. Thank you so much for joining us this week for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by funds from the Virginia W. Hill Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.